I'd like to welcome you to the ministry of McCormick's Creek Church. We certainly hope that you will enjoy this selection. How many would like to be prepared? Prepared to, to operate in the kingdom of God? Prepared to go to heaven? Prepared to just be a better person all the way around? That's what Jesus was doing with his disciples. I'm going to read out of Matthew 6, 7, and 8, and in Matthew 16, and in Matthew 18. In Matthew 6, 7, and 8 says, But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of even before you ask him. Matthew 16:13 says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter scratched his head and answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he goes on to say, and I'm not adding to it, and I can't understand why anybody can't figure that one out. That's, I added that last part. Okay. Matthew 18, 1 and 4. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, Except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter in to the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Turn around and look at somebody and shake their hand, tell them they're good looking, and sit down. Tell them. That's the reason you said up here, so you have to turn around and tell anybody they're good looking. <laughs> oh. Oh. Don't you feel better now? You got a compliment this morning? Don't you feel better? Have you ever, you know, I, I'm one of these guys that that uh, try to put myself in position where the disciples were or even in the same time period when Jesus walked on the earth. Can you imagine what it would have been like to listen to him teach? I, I mean, think about that. Can you imagine what it would have been like to even be one of the multitudes that was there and heard him speak? It, it, it would probably, you would probably think, well, if, if I was there or Jesus was here and I could hear him teach, and he was the one behind this Bible stand, then I wouldn't have any problem whatsoever living right. You probably think that. Or there may be a few of you that do. So imagine hearing him. But then if we really are honest and we really believe the Scripture, it would be no different if he was here than someone that was anointed by his Spirit. No different whatsoever. When a man or a woman is anointed with the Spirit of God, it is the same thing as Jesus speaking to you. No different. So we can say all those things and we can 
say, well, if he was here, then I could live better, I would live better, and all this. But yet, he is here. He is here in the hearts of every one of you. And when the anointing of God falls on an individual, whether it's behind the Bible stand, a testimony, whatever it may be, it's the same as Him speaking to you. In fact, John wrote, he said, But the anointing which you have received of Him abideth in you. And you need not that any man teach you in 1 John 2.27. Now, let's clarify that Scripture. He's not telling you that you don't need some, a teacher. He is telling you that through the anointing of God, it's not a man that is teaching you, but the Spirit of God. He's speaking in that context of man's wisdom, not of God's wisdom. So if you looked at it in that light, he said, you're not going to need any man to teach you his wisdom, but rather through the anointing, he's going to teach you God's wisdom. That's what he's saying here, and it's, it's a wonderful. Now, I have to admit that still there's a part of me would love to have heard Jesus speak. And, you know, we don't see him physically, but we can be powerfully instructed by his Spirit. And when the Lord's Spirit takes control of our lives, we are guided, the Bible says in John 16, 13, into all truth. All truth. If you want to know truth, listen to the anointing. Listen to the anointed Word of God as it's preached by an anointed man of God or taught by an anointed man of God. Because there's something about the Word when it's anointed that it penetrates all the barriers that we have. It goes through the physicality of our human uh, existence and gets right into the spirit of a human being. And that's what anointing does for us. And early in, in, in the Lord's ministry, He was seeking he was seeking men to whom he could, he could teach the principles of the kingdom of God. He needed to teach these disciples much and, and drastically change many of their previous ways of thinking. Ever, what, what, reflects, what reflects the image of God? I still got this thing I'm working on. I've been working on about the image of God. By the time I'm 87, I figure I might get two pages done, maybe. Because I'm, I look at it and I, I get more revelation than I have change it. Then I get more revelation, I have change it. And I, got, I figured this out. Only thing I can come up with is maybe a paragraph. But what God can come up with is a whole volume. It's just you need to get there, and feeling like you you can do this. But you think they, you, what, they, these men, these men had to to change and so to reflect. The image of God, the mirror had to be finely polished. So we are the image of God, and so we as mirrors have to be finely polished to truly reflect the image. What are you saying? I'm saying that sometimes when you polish something, you have to rub it real hard. You have to get a lot of crud off of it. You know, you, you take the Windex and you spray on the mirror and you, you wipe it down real good. And, and, and oddly enough, it seems like you can walk away from a window after you do that and there's a bug on it as soon as you look back. It's the same thing with us. Every time we get polished real good, there's a bug back on us. And it, 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 there's always something to bug us. You know, there's always something there to bug us. And so it has to be. These disciples needed to forget their, their preconceived ideas about personal advancement. 
and prestige. They didn't need to quit thinking in terms of how humanity thinks. It's not a matter of personal prestige. It's not a matter of advancement. They needed to hear the message of the kingdom taught with power and with authority. And, they, and, and see hope and strength given to the hopeless and the weak. That's what this is all about. It's not only us making it to heaven, but it's giving us hope to make it to heaven. It's giving us hope in this world. It's giving us, uh, it's giving us something that we can, we can look to and the strength to be able to maintain and to carry on and to go forward. That's what we need, and this is what they needed to see preached. And part of that preparation for the disciples involved severe trials. There were storms at sea. There was growing opposition from the Pharisees. Their, their faith was challenged when a multitude of followers left the Master after he had spoken on the bread of heaven. Their minds struggled to understand what he meant by his coming death and his future departure. Part of their preparation involved acting by faith on the Lord's spoken word is when he commanded the twelve, go feed the five thousand with five barley loaves and two fish. Do you realize how hard that would be? You got 5,000 people out there, and they hand Tony Duras the, uh, two loaves of bread and a half of fish, and he said, Go feed 2,000 of them. Do you realize how difficult they had to learn to operate on the Word of God? You, you, you get what I'm saying? There is sometimes God, by His Word, tells you something, and that's what you have to operate on, even though it doesn't look possible to you. They had to learn this. So they, they also, you know, they, they, those who were fishermen among them had, had seen the great catch of fish after letting down their net in response to his command. Peter learned that when he trusted the Lord's directive that he could get tax money out of the mouth of a fish and he could walk on water. Tax time's coming up and I've been walking on water trying to catch a fish for about the last two weeks. In fact, Jerry asked me to go with him walk on water and, and catch fish the other day. You can do it in this kind of weather. If I could pull up a fish with a thousand dollars in its mouth, I'd be I'd go ice fishing every day. I don't even like ice fishing, so <laughs> oh, I've been in enough cold weather. So you can look, you know, that this is what he saw. He he learned that he if he trusted the Lord's directive, he could he could get what God told him that he could have. Now, while Jesus did minister to the multitudes, he used much of his time to carefully instruct the twelve. After their, after their return from the Galilean mission, Jesus spent approximately six months in special effort to train them. These were to be crucial days for the Lord knew he would entrust these men with a gospel message. This little company would be responsible to, to carry on the work of proclaiming the kingdom of God after he left them. In fact, the master was placing the keys of eternal life within their hands. What a responsibility that was for the fact that they were being entrusted with this message. And what a responsibility it is still today that we're entrusted with this message. We should never, ever take this lightly. You should never come to church and take what you're receiving lightly. Because what you're receiving can make the difference in heaven and hell. What you're receiving can make the difference in whether or not you can give somebody the words of life so take it and take it into your heart hide it in your heart don't let anybody rob you of this wonderful word of god nobody so on the lessons that we're learning are actually the lessons that he taught first and foremost was the lessons on prayer 
and, and, and keep in mind that prayer permeated everything Jesus said and did. The apostles themselves came to realize that their master's ministry was dependent on his communion with his heavenly father. And no wonder one of them requested, he said, Lord, teach us to pray. One of the things that I always, always gets me every time I read that portion of scripture, he never, ever asked them or none of them ever asked him rather to teach them to preach. He said, teach me to pray. Don't teach me to teach. Don't teach me to preach, but teach me to pray. Because if you can learn to pray... And you can take the Word of God in on that prayer. Listen to me, friend. There's absolutely nothing impossible for you. You can go out and do a work for God that you never thought was possible. If you can learn the proper way to pray. I'm not praying just to have a lot of words. I am praying to see heaven move. I am praying to see God operate within McCormick Street Church. I am praying that God will operate within me. The lifestyle of Jesus was, it was dynamic proof the apostles needed to pray. His instructions as recorded in the Gospels became their lesson on how they should pray. Jesus stressed the fact that the twelve were not to follow the example of the Pharisees. They hypocritically prayed to be seen of men. The common practice of those religionists was to stand in a prominent place, such as in a synagogue or street corners, where they were certain they would be noticed by. And by doing this, the Pharisees were making a public display of their piety. But the Lord condemned their insincerity, and he said, Verily, uh, the Lord told his disciples, they have their reward in Matthew 6, 5. They get their reward by the fact that people are seeing them and saying, oh, how pious they are, how great these men are because they're standing on the street corner and praying out in loud, vain repetitions, and that makes them look really good. But the ones who really made a difference as far as heaven was concerned were the people who found themselves in a secret place crying out, saying, God, make me a better person. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the ones that made the difference. True prayer reveres God and pleases Him. And it was never meant to be a boring monologue of one repeated phrase following another. He said, use no vain repetitions as the heathen do. Jesus admonished His disciples in Matthew 6, 7. He said, even today... There are many who follow meaningless uh, formulas when they pray. There is no pouring out of the heart in contrition before the Lord. No genuine repentance, adoration, or praise. Listen, listen. if you don't have anything else to ask God for, you find a place and you just begin to thank Him for all that He's done. You begin to thank Him for being God. You begin to thank Him for the cross. You begin to thank Him for your family. You begin to thank Him for truth. You begin to thank Him for your daily bread. You begin to thank Him for... For all the blessings that you have, you begin to even thank Him that you've gone through some hard times because you know that at the end of the hard times you're going to be a better person. You begin to thank Him. Do you see how much time I just spent telling you how to thank Him? How much more could you add to that? <laughs> Create in me a clean heart. And a right spirit within me in Psalm 51.10, David's, uh, David's prayer of repentance. And David's attitude towards transgression stood out in stark contrast to the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees in, in the Lord's day. 
The multitude and the disciples heard Jesus openly denounce their self-righteous enemies of the Lord. They were like whited sepulchers, is what he called them. They appeared to be beautiful on the outside, but they were full of dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanness in Matthew 23:27, They made a great show of cleansing the outside of the cup and the plate, but at the same time they were consumed with greed and selfish interest. Jesus knew what was in man, according to John 2.25, and how well he knew that individuals would need to ask forgiveness over and over. Prayer has been called the holiest of holies, or the holy of holies, rather. A place where we are invited to meet with righteous God. But we can really pray and enjoy fellowship with the Lord only when we're willing to confess and forsake our sins. The disciples were learning. They were learning prayer was not just a matter of outward performance. Indeed, it involved an inward devotion towards the Heavenly Father. That's what they were learning. That's what we still have to be reminded of over and over and over again. Simply because you don't get up here and pray just loud so people will hear that you're praying. I don't want a prayer that people hear. I want a prayer that moves God. I want a prayer that, that, that shakes heaven. That's what I want to see. I want to see needs met, not just mine. I want to see the people that I'm praying for their needs met this is what this is about this is what this is about and he talked about it he said if it's not working for you then let me give you something else here to help you out and it's called importunity he said i i I want you to be persistent in your prayer i want you to be persistent i've seen this and many of you have too Uh, and i'm just uh, this is just a just an example a man comes to the altar after Sunday night service. <clears throat> he comes down, and he, and he prays, and you watch him. And I've seen this. I've watched this. And he prays. And in a few minutes, you see him shaking his head like this, and he get up. He, no, no form of worship while he was praying. No, no, thank you, Jesus, nothing. No form of anything. He's just down there, and he's not doing anything. And he shakes his head, and then he gets up and goes back and sits back in his pew. That is in stark contrast with the woman with the issue of blood. Do you see what I'm saying? It's because of persistence, importunity. He said, what of you? Who of you, rather? You got someone coming over, and he said, you're out of bread, and it's midnight. Your neighbor's already in bed. He's locked the door. But you know that you don't have anything to feed your, 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 your friend that's coming over. What do you do? He said, you go over and knock on the door. And the man says, he said, I'm in bed. Don't bother me. He beat on the door some more. He said, I've got to have some bread. I've got someone coming. And he said, it's not because your neighbor really likes you. It's because he don't want to hear you beating on his door. And he gets up and gives you what you have need of. Now, this is the story that Jesus was telling. And he said, how much more will your heavenly Father who loves you? He just wants to hear you. He wants to hear you and know that you really want this from him. That you love him enough to believe that he'll do this for you. It's not a matter of coming down on your level. It's not a matter of you getting down here and saying, Okay, God, here I am. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to praise. I'm not going to do anything. I just do it for me, God. And there are people that do that. They just sit. They come to an altar. They don't do anything. And, and they believe God should do something for them. 
I don't know about you, maybe some of you remember, but I know that when I decided I wanted the Holy Ghost, I did whatever is necessary to get the Holy Ghost. I made a whole lot of racket. I did a whole lot of crazy things. And I did a lot crazier things after I got the Holy Ghost because I was so thankful that He gave me the Holy Ghost. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you want this, if you want salvation, and God gives you salvation, He fills you with a baptism of the Holy Ghost. You've been baptized in His wonderful name. If He has done this for you, how much more? I mean, this is a gift from God, and you should do whatever is necessary to receive this gift. When we earnestly seek what we actually need, and what is within God's will for our lives. Prayer is eminently effective. Luke 9 says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And I've taught on those three areas of prayer, divided at the platform, talking about asking, seeking, and knocking. And so we, we do this because, you know, we, and they are separate. Asking is we ask for our petitions. But when you get through your list of needs... Ask, then you begin to seek his presence. And when you get into his presence, then you just begin to bask in his presence. Ask and it shall begin. You seek and you shall find knock. That's where the knocking is. You seek in his presence. You're over here now knocking. God, I just want to feel your presence. I want to hear your voice. That's the, that's the ultimate place in prayer. He gives us the model prayer, and it was common among the Jews to follow certain prescribed forms of prayer. Jesus must have felt it necessary to give instructions to his followers as to how they should petition God. The prayer he taught them, as recorded in Matthew 6 and 9 and Luke 11, 2, has similar content but is not identical in wording. So you have two, uh, two chapters here in verses of the same thing, Matthew 6 and Luke 11. And they're talking about the model of prayer. Now, in both cases... It does not say they're not identical. It has some of the same content, but it's not identical. So what they're saying that's indicating that it does not have to be a spoken word for word. It's not necessary for you to quote the Lord's Prayer. It's necessary for you to use it as a model of prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, that's worship. So you begin to worship at the beginning of your prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You're worshiping him. Worship Hallowed be thy name. What is his name? His name is Jesus. I'm giving Jesus all the glory I can give him. And you do that at the beginning of any prayer. Uh, thy kingdom come. You want the kingdom of God to be to come. Not just you know in McCormick's Creek, Owen County. You want it in individual lives. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth. Not on earth, in earth. I don't care what you can say what you want, but Robertson says when you read it, I believe it the way it's read. And when I'm talking about thy kingdom come in earth, I am made of the dust of the earth. So I want the kingdom in here. I don't really care if it's on my head. I want it in my heart. In earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. There's really some petitions you can ask. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. There we go. And so you begin to pray, and then you end it with, <clears throat> you end it with praise. For thine is the kingdom, the glory, and the uh, glory and the power forever. Amen. So, so you you end it with praise. It's a model. It's not repeated. You know, it'll be something. I'm in a bad situation. My car is getting out of control down the icy roads of Owen County. 
because all the county employees are drinking coffee in the in the garage somewhere. Hope there's no county employees here. <laughs> You're skidding out of control. And you say, all right, everybody's got to stop. Our Father, which art in heaven. Yeah, you've got to get through the whole thing. No, I guarantee you what you're doing is you're crying out on the, to the name of Jesus. Jesus, I need you. I need you. That is a heartfelt prayer. Believe me. I need you. So it's just a model. That's all. So we have the model of prayer. Now we look at something else. What else was he teaching his apostles, disciples? Lessons on humility. Who, the disciples asked, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Matthew 18 and 1. And Jesus brought a little child into their midst. Now, you can imagine how they felt. They were, you know, Peter was sitting there. You know, he's all ready for him to say, well, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Peter is, of course. Or John, you know, John is. Judas, he wasn't expecting a whole lot. But, you know, he would like to have it. Every one of them had the idea that when that question was asked, that they were going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Instead, he has them bring a little child, which they have just run off, by the way. You know, kids get away. Don't bother. Don't bother. So he brings this little child. And patiently, Jesus asserted that the disciples needed to have a change of attitude. He wanted them to be converted if they were to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 18, 4, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, he, he excuse me, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, generally, a little child is tender-hearted, trusting, submissive. And these 12 men were lacking some of these same qualities. This is what he was looking for. I'm not, I'm not looking for how great you want to be. I, I'm looking for those of you that are submissive, that are tender-hearted, that are trusting. That's what I want. I'm not asking you to become a little child. I'm asking you to be as a little child. That's what I'm asking. And a lot of them, about all of them were missing the mark here. They themselves were acting like children who were spoiled and who were quarreling over a favorite toy. They wanted to be the greatest. So Jesus said, this is what you need to be like. Then he teaches them on something else that is so hard. You know, it's, I, I, it's probably been preached on through the years millions of times. Probably been preached on here hundreds of times. And no matter how many times you, you preach on it, you always get the same response. Everybody kind of clams up and they get real stiff. Oh, and we're not talking about what you wear. We're talking about where you are. And that's forgiveness. We were just, that was before service, was talking a little bit about it. And, and you know, you find out, I've got a book Sister Dean gave me here that uh, I noticed this right on the back of it where this guy uh, goes over this in the book about rehearsing old hurts and pains, which you've heard me preach on bunches of times. So I'm anxious to find out someone else believes the same way that I do, that you don't keep going over those things because the more you rehearse and the more that you talk about the old hurts, the more they come and become fresh to you. And then the more you, you think about things, you think you've, you've forgiven. You, you really think that you have forgiven until something similar happens. And then, all that comes right back up. And then I was telling her, I said, and on top of it, because you haven't forgiven, 
then you have condemnation that enters in. So you're not only hit with a lack of forgiveness, now you're hit with condemnation because you haven't forgiven. So he, he, he spends a little time talking to them about this. So for unforgiveness, let's just look at it for a minute. It's, it's a deadly, deadly spiritual disease, and it's contagious, and it's progressive. Did you think that unforgiveness is contagious? Well, it is, isn't it? Because as soon as you have been hitting 26th chapter of Proverbs on Wednesdays talking about tail-bearing and all this stuff, the whole chapter is really about that. And, uh, you know, you, you, you begin to realize that when you talk to someone about whatever problem or lack of forgiveness you have, what you generate in that person is they begin to look back at their lives and find something that hurt them however long ago they were hurt. And all of a sudden now... Their problems come to the surface. Now, now, it's not a bad thing to have them come to the surface as long as you deal with them. And you, and you take those things out. You know how I am in, uh, big and doing stuff. You know. uh, one time we had a, I'll do that again. We had a service where I took a, a pail of, of grape juice, poured it here, and had everybody take all their lack of forgiveness, sins, things that were bothering them, and throw it, this little piece of paper, in a grape juice. I wasn't going to use real wine. It's too expensive. Okay? <laughs> I take real wine in communion. Uh, grape juice, we can, we'll use it for that. But it was symbolic that all these things are under the blood. All these things are under the blood. And, and it, it, believe it or not, when you sometimes can see something. It's like bringing something that you're lacking in forgiveness on to the surface. If you get it to the surface, the way you need to take it out. You need to take it out and lay it on the altar and forget it. And don't go back and pick it up. And, and, and this, is, this, is, this is so, because, you know, this, this is, we're, we're talking about something that can spread like cancer. And it's incurable as long as we ignore the symptoms. A critical attitude is a symptom of unforgiveness. Evil speaking is a symptom of unforgiveness. Hatred is a symptom of unforgiveness. And so then what is, what, what is the cause of this terrible malady? You know, what, is, what is the cause of this? What's the reason people choose to live? Or why? What is it, again, live with the pain of unforgiveness? Sometimes, sometimes we live with this for years, and sometimes until our health fails us because of bitterness. You're not going to like this. I don't think anybody likes this, but I think we all know it. I don't think I'm going to tell you anything that you don't know. All of this is because of pride. Every bit of it's pride. People selfishly refuse to forgive someone who has intentionally or unintentionally injured them because of our pride. Pride. According to who you talk to. Now, my wife will tell you that it's okay to have a certain amount of pride when it comes to your work. Brother Krauss has a great deal. He's, he, he does that well. He does a good job. He does it quickly. He doesn't bother you. He's the only guy I've ever had to do a job for me that when I started talking to him, he ignored me. 
And I've always been able to talk any contractor out of working any time. Not a problem at all. He ignored me. So I was hurt. I was devastated. He got the job done in less time that it takes someone to, to, you know, to turn a switch on. And, and, and he gets out of the way. That's a great thing. And he takes a certain amount of pride. And, and do you think that that's okay? Or is any pride devilish? Anybody? Go ahead. Any pride. Is it devilish? So it would be, like he said, a sense of spiritual pride. Anybody else? Is pride even spiritual pride? Because believe it or not, you said they made a statement. I heard a person say that, this is a long time ago, they're not here in this church now, that individual has got spiritual pride. They're self-righteous. So can spiritual pride be bad? Go ahead. Okay, let me let, let me go go there just for a second. What you said makes makes sense, but the person who was pointing out this so-called spiritual pride could have also had sin in their life, and because an individual was trying to live right and not do things, they were pointing out that they're being self-righteous because they think they're better than I am. Go ahead. That's great. That's a great answer. Excellence of spirit. Anybody else? Go ahead. What's that? 
dignity. That's good. Excellence of spirits, I think, would be a dignity. Very good. Very good. Tell her thank you. <laughs> All right. Go ahead, Brother Manley. Okay, and that's exactly, that's exactly right. There is where the self-righteousness comes in. It's a haughtiness. That's where you, and you can sense that. Someone's looking down on you because, all right, you, you, uh, you've not won five people to God like I did last week. Or, you know, you know what I'm saying. Something of that nature. So, so I, you know, that is, that's where your self-righteousness comes in. Um, anybody else? There's some really good answers. Go ahead. Do it without God's help. Okay, that's good. You have something? You were agreeing. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Brother Gillespie. Very good. Very good. And, you know, and it does come back. Uh, and this one particular uh, instance I was telling you about has been a lot of years ago. Uh, but this person... That, that was accusing the other one. The other one was not a self-righteous person. But they were trying their best to live for God. And, and they just, you know, sometimes when, when you're fairly, fairly new in the church, you know what you're trying to do, and you try to kind of back away from other people that are not necessarily doing what you're trying to do. Not because you think you're better than them. It's because you don't want that to rub off on you. You know, you know your weaknesses. We all do. So anyway, very good, good conversation. That, uh, that was good. So let's look at the next one, forgiveness. And so we can look at the contrast here. While the disciples bickered at the, at the Last Supper about who should be considered the greatest, Jesus took up a towel and began to wash their feet. Now Jesus, in this case, was dealing much more with calloused hearts than he was with calloused feet. Now the actions of the, of the Lord embarrassed Simon Peter and perhaps the proudest of them all. It smote him to the quick and he said, Thou shalt never wash my feet in John 13 and 8. Was his quick response, uh, you know, it was a quick, you're never going to do it. And Jesus had to, to, to nail him to the wall, if you please, when he said, Well, listen, Peter, if you don't let me do this, he said, You're going to have no part in me. And it was so difficult because he was hitting areas here that was so much different than the Pharisee religion that these men were used to. So here we have the master washing the disciples' feet. So the lesson Jesus was teaching is his followers went beyond the mere act of, of, of foot washings. And it was teaching them in practice what he had already taught them in precept. And he says, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he tells the parable. Man went out early in the morning to hire workers to work in his vineyard. Promises the, the men early in the morning, I'm going to give you one penny, one denarius for working the day. Then throughout the day, he sees that they need some help, so he hires throughout the day. And uh, he tells those men, he said, well, we'll just see at the end of the day what, what happens here. Well, at the end of the day, he pays all of them the same amount of money. 
Well, the ones who came out, and God guarantee you that everybody in this church would have been upset. Don't, don't sit back here and be self-righteous with me. <laughs> you know, yeah, don't, don't do that. You, know, you would have been upset. Yes, you would have. See, he's, he's telling them the truth. You know, he's been working through the heat of the day, done everything, and they got this, these two, two, two guys come in, you know, and, and, and they, they begin to work two hours prior to quitting time. And they get the same amount of money. And that is a difficult one to deal with for anybody. And he tells them, and he said, when they complain, he said, well, you know, it's mine to do with what I want. You know, don't, don't gripe at me. You know, and he was being generous is what he was doing. And it's hard. You ever come to the point for you? You know, you've been in church for all these years. You've been in church, and, and, and you see this, this, this newbie come in. Get the Holy Ghost. And all pastors doing great things with him, you know. Doing all these things, spending time, taking them out, letting them buy him lunch. <laughs> you noticed I got that one in, didn't you? Did you notice that? <laughs> and, 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 you know, all of a sudden, you know, who's this guy? Well, I would have let the pastor bought me lunch. See, that's the why you never get taken out to lunch, because that's the attitude that I'm trying to get away from. <laughs> so, so, so you know, you, and you see that, and you you wonder, and and people get upset. It's the same thing. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. So, so in in the, in the sense that God, it's His to do with, and we shouldn't be upset in, in any way, shape, or form that somebody has got this wonderful salvation, and they may be treat be treated like kings. Because we also know, if we've been around, that someone who, who receives the Holy Ghost is soon going to be attacked by the devil. We don't like to talk about it, but it happens. And we know they're going to get hit. So we try to give them as much uh, inspiration, if you would, as we possibly can. So he tells us, and, you know, our, our greatest reward will be to know that when we see Jesus, that we've been redeemed for all eternity, whether we have lived for God for a few years or for many years. And to hear the Lord say, well done, will be, it should be sufficient reward for all of us. All of us. And then we see the lessons on self-sacrifice that he was trying to teach them. Jesus must have startled the multitudes as he began to speak about John the Baptist. And he says, among them that are born of women, he declares this, there hath no, not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So what an assessment this was. John wore no elegant clothing. He bore no earthly titles. He claimed, uh, he claimed no honor other than that he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness in John 123 and Isaiah 40 and 3. And yet John's preaching caused great multitudes to repent and to be baptized. Then went out to, to him Jerusalem and Judea and all the region around about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins in Matthew 3, 5, and 6. Truly, John, was a, he was a spokesman for, for God. And here indeed was a, a man sent from God in John 1, 6. And his primary purpose was to bear witness to the Christ, the light of the world. And Jesus said John was a prophet, but more than a prophet. For while Isaiah and others in the Old Testament had spoken of the coming Messiah, John lived to introduce him to the people of Israel. What an honor. He got to introduce him to the people. He goes on and he talks about 
riches and true riches. What is the riches? What is the true riches? The young man that comes running to him and and, and a very wealthy uh, leader in, in the area, uh, wealthy young man, but he also knows that he doesn't have everything that he needs, and there's something there's something missing. He's a, a rich ruler, but there's still something missing. And he says, "Good master," he asks. He said, "What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life?" In Matthew 19, and and the young man was willing to make a sacrifice. It was obvious that he was willing to make a sacrifice. But he wasn't willing to sacrifice everything when Jesus said, Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. Then the young man, he said, went away very sad because he had a lot of stuff. He wasn't willing to get rid of it. There are inconceivable riches in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. And nothing can compare to the love, the joy, the hope, and the peace that he pours out upon believers through the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Comparatively, it seems like a small task to honor the Lord with our money when we receive so much more than what money can buy. If therefore, he said, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit you the trust of the true riches? And when mammon is talking about money, and he says, if you can't be faithful in what you have, then how in the world can I give you the greater riches? And God alone knows what the greater riches are. I mean, you ever stop and thought about that? Is that talking about heaven? Is it talking about riches here that we still haven't really plumbed the depths of? I don't really know. I really don't know. But it's a wonder. The disciples, they had, they had seen blind eyes open. They had seen deaf ears unstopped. Now, miss, is this the riches? Personally, I believe that it is. I'm not sure that's all of it. But I believe this is the riches he was speaking of. But they were equally amazed at the statements Jesus made regarding the well-to-do. Children, he said, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God in Mark 10:24, The popular opinion of the day was that, that material possessions, now this was in their time. Can you imagine how things are today in our time? But that popular opinion, material possessions were a sign of heaven's blessings. But as Jesus presented it, riches were far more often a hindrance than a help. How can we... I believe in prosperity. I believe that we should have what we need. I I believe that. And you've been praying good on that area. But on the other side of it, we can't equate prosperity with God's blessings. Not when He spoke the way that He did. You know, we have to look at it, right, what is prosperity? Uh, $10 to one is prosperous, but a million dollars to another one is, is prosperous. What is prosperity? Being able to pay our bills and do what we need to do. Yes, I, I believe that that is prosperity. I think God can give us the desires of our heart. And I think as we bless the kingdom of God, God gives you more and more and more. But not often does He do it immediately. And that's where the problem comes in. People expect an instant. I paid my tithes, so tomorrow I should have twice my tithes. That's not it. You pay your tithes because that's what you owe God. You give, your, you give, you give offerings because that's above your tithes. And that's how you're blessed. But you, when you begin to see this and, and look at it, he never, he never really gave a whole lot of hope to rich people. Now, Jesus promised a glorious future for these who had made great sacrifices in the new world. When, when the Lord would be enthroned, the disciples would also sit upon 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. 
there was a hundredfold reward awaiting those who had left loved ones for his namesake. Listen to this. There was everlasting life in store for those who had given up the pleasures of this world for this cause. So he says there's going to be some blessings for you. You may not get it now. You may not get what you think you should. It's always amazing to me, the person who's, who's waiting on the, uh, whatever, a huge amount, because I'm still believing we're going to get a million dollars. I still walk around, my, I believe it. But it's not for me. It's for the church. It's for the kingdom of God. That's what God wants to bless. That's what God wants. When we want it so that we can just spend it on ourselves, there's, that's, the, that's a different story. That is a, a whole different story. But when you give, and this is when a, when a person goes beyond that capacity and, and gives, and God gives them more to give, when they begin to, to use that on themselves, that's where the problem arises. And this is what he's trying to tell and talk about here. Uh, he said there's benefits for those who are willing to sacrifice. Then he goes on to lessons in divinity. That's an interesting one. He often used penetrating questions to cause his disciples and even his enemies to thoroughly consider what they believed. Um, and, and, you know, really, we all need that. We need to consider what we believe. What are we holding true? That's the reason I, I, I always come back to this one thing, that the Bible has not changed. The, the Scripture is the same. And for us to try to say, well, it doesn't mean that anymore, that's telling me that then, then people who, who looked at this back in a time when, forgive me for saying this, but I think intelligence, especially when it came to reading and understanding, uh, was much better back 100 years ago than it is today. Okay? And the reason I say that is because they didn't have televisions to, to mess with. They didn't have movies. They didn't have anything else to take up their time. Their time was taken in study. And you read the works of some of these early reformers. And you know, the, the, the wording, how they use words was so, it's, it's amazing. It's reading not like old books. You read this new stuff, and you open the first page, and name it and claim it. You know, and that's about the, that's the, they could do one, one page, and that's all that that would need. You know, name it and claim it. That's pretty much it. Everybody's into prosperity, and the only prosperity is the person selling the book. And so, you know, so why then would men, why would men back 100 years ago believe in the necessity of holiness like the Scripture teaches us and not try to take that away? We need holiness. We need separation. We need to be different. We are a peculiar people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's what the Scripture teaches us. So how is it that that is no longer necessary? Because somebody has got some kind of revelation in the Scripture? How do you pull that out and throw it away? That always, uh, and so here we see that, that this is why we need to look at this. And, and we had, the, we had the, the, the disciples coming to Jesus. And as he entered in the region of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, he realized his ministry on earth was quickly moving toward a conclusion. And it was time to examine the twelve. All right, now, he said, you guys have been in school here for six months. He said, it's time to examine you. Let me see, see what you know. Let me see what you, are, uh, what you have learned. Whom do men say that I am? Simple question. <clears throat> do you understand my identity? It was not that the Lord did not know what the common people were saying. He was well aware. Some were referring to him as John the Baptist, some as Isaiah, some as one of the other prophets. 
But Jesus was leading his disciples to consider a far more significant question. Jesus had at first asked what the public thought. Now he turned his attention to the disciples. But whom say ye that I am? All right, we know what the people are saying, but who do you think I am? I've been with you six months. You've seen me open blinded eyes. You've seen me unstop deaf ears. You've seen me do all these wonderful works. Now, now, who do you say that I am? And boldly, Peter asserted that he knew in his heart to be true. He knew this to be true. He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, his statement was more than conjecture or even an opinion. It was a God-given conviction. What Peter expressed was based on the irrefutable evidence of what he had seen and heard. To say Jesus was a Christ meant he was the anointed of God. And typically in the Old Testament, kings and priests were anointed with oil for service. But our Lord was anointed by the Holy Spirit. At Anon, John the Baptist had testified of Jesus in John 3.34, and he said, God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. And in reference to this expression, Son of God, W.E. Vine wrote in the Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament Words, he says, absolute Godhead, not Godhead in a secondary sense, is intended in that title. Now this is what Vine's Expository says. Absolute Godhead. When they call one the Son of God, it was not saying a secondary. He was saying this is an absolute God. When you see Godhead, that means God's headquarters. God lived in the man Christ Jesus. Jesus bore the very nature of the Almighty. He was of the same divine essence. And although others might be perplexed, for Peter the matter was firmly settled. He knew. Strangely, the truth of Jesus Christ's divine nature was hidden from the eyes of, of many when he walked on the earth, even as it has become a mystery to many today. The truth, however, had been revealed to the prophets of old, speaking of the child who would become the Messiah. Isaiah prophesied, he said, name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ is the everlasting God. He is the great I Am. As God, He met Moses on the burn, at the burning bush and revealed Himself by the name I Am that I Am. A phrase that speaks of the unchangeableness of the Almighty. What God has been, that He will ever be, Malachi 3.6. And as a man, Jesus Christ had a beginning, but as His deity, He's eternal. How he, how he enraged the Jews uh, of his day when he proclaimed, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am, in, June, in John eight fifty eight, He was telling them, I am the unchangeable Almighty God. That's what he was saying. There was no mistaking Christ's meaning, and the Jews took up stones to destroy him, but simply because they knew exactly what he was saying. Nor was it a coincidence that Jesus declared, I am the bread of life in John 6.35. I am the light of the world in John 8.12. He said, I am that I am. Now just, just think about what he says here. I am the door of the sheep in John 10.7. I am the good shepherd, John 10.11. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11.25. I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14 and 6. And I am the true vine in John 15 and 1. The fourth gospel was written specifically to declare and to document the divine status of Jesus Christ. John 20, 31 will tell you that. 
The authoritative words spoken by Jesus Christ must have removed any curtain of doubt from the minds of the disciples. He claimed and exercised the power to forgive sin. He stilled the storm of the Sea of Galilee with a single uh, command. He resurrected the dead and prophesied that the three days of death he would raise his own body. The scriptures go far beyond what countless numbers of people have been taught about Jesus Christ. You'll hear what I'm saying. Countless people have been taught that Jesus was a secondary person in a fictitious Godhead. Jesus is the one true God. There is none like Him. Manifested in the flesh. Are you hearing me? He was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. Aren't you glad you know the truth? Stand with me. Stand with me. Thank you, Jesus. I love teaching Sunday school. I like teaching Sunday school better than preaching on Sunday night. I think that happens when you get old, cantankerous. You know, I still want to hit the, I want to hit the, the mind a little bit. It's what I want to do, not just the emotions. I like to, I, I enjoy both, but teaching is getting. And you folks are just really good to teach, really easy to teach. You respond very well. Thank you. Thank you. The only thing that in life I have tried my best to, to get across, I still have failed to do that. And that, that is Mikey Smith. He needs to buy a Ford and get rid of them Chevys. That is the only thing I've not been able to do. <laughs> he points to me that I was over to her place and I killed a deer, and he took his old Chevy. He keeps two of them. You have to have two, one for a spare. <laughs> and he come running back. He come back. He come back and helped me haul the deer out. The thing is, I took the tailgate off the truck, and it fell off. You know, and I, <laughs> uh, I haven't. The reason I'm doing this, I haven't seen Mike in a while. I have to let him know that I, I know he's here, so he'll never get a break from me. Come early to pray tonight. Let's have some good church. What do you say? See somebody baptized in Jesus' name filled with the Holy Ghost. You believe that? I believe it too. Let's raise our hands. Let's love God right now. Lord, we thank you for your blessings, your goodness, your mercy. Keep your hand upon each and every one. We pray and ask God now that you would touch in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.